In Exodus chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, it says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning dew lay around the camp, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? And they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it within Omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to keep it till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today. For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. 
Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. When I was new in the ministry, the first ministry that I participated in full time, we were going through a rough time. They had some real struggles and some real serious deals that we had to deal with in the church at that time. It was at that time that my mother-in-law reached out to me in, in an encouraging way, and she, she bought me a few things for my office. And one of them was, was this thing. You probably can't see it too well from there, but it's a picture, and it's a little saying by it. It says, don't ever give up. And I love the picture. The picture is of this frog, and he's about halfway in the beak of this bird. But he's reaching around the head of the bird, and he's got that bird by the neck. <laughs> and and, and I, I, I really like that. Well, obviously, I still have it. And it's been, uh, I don't know, 25, 30 years. And then there's another one that she got me also. That's just, this one's just a saying. It says, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God couldn't keep you. It reminds me of another saying that I came across over the years, which is, it says pretty much the same thing, but a, a little bit shorter. And it just says simply, where God guides, God provides. And that's what I see happening in this section of the Word of God in the book of Exodus is, God is guiding Israel out into the wilderness. They're going to have some obstacles to face and some challenges ahead of them. And because of their disobedience at one point, or their lack of faith, it is going to turn into 40 years that are out in the wilderness. And God knows that. He's not leading them into the plush and green place. He's leading them out into more of a desolate place, which is obviously going to have its challenges for, what, two to three million people that are, that are headed out into that area. But what we notice in this passage and a little bit following it and a little bit before it is that as God's guiding them out into this wilderness area, he's also providing for them in his grace. At the end of chapter 15, it talks about them coming to a place where the water was bitter. And so God has them throw a log into the water, which I don't think anything in the log necessarily is going to do it. It's an act of faith that they have to trust him and do what he says. They throw a log in the pond and the water clears up and they're able to drink. And then they have this instance with the food. They start complaining that they're going to starve to death out here. And God provides miraculously for them by blowing in a bunch of quail and then every morning having the manna appear on the ground for them. The last part of the chapter says for the full 40 years, he's going to take care of them that way. And then as we get into the next chapter, into chapter 17, we find that they are complaining that there's no water to drink because God led them away from where they had a lot of water. I think it's testing them again. And again, they failed and they grumbled against Moses, which is actually grumbling against God. And at that point, God has Moses go to this rock and hit the rock with a staff and the rock splits and the water comes gushing out and he gives the people plenty to drink. He also provides for them one more thing, and that is a rest. He commands it in the Sabbath that they're to rest. And at one point he says, look, I've given you the Sabbath. When they ignore him and they go out thinking they're going to pick up manna and collect food again on this seventh day, God says, look, I I did it for you. I gave you a rest. A day that you don't have to go out and take care of those things. And and so they're really kind of working against their own good. But anyway, he provided for them that, that rest there as well. Well, as we look at this, 
we see a principle involved here that God is the one leading them out into the desert. It is God that delivered them from Egypt. And that's exactly what God wants them to know. He says, I'm doing this so that you will know. He repeats that a couple times. So that you will know that it's me that led you out of, the, out of Egypt. So you'll know that it's me that is bringing you to the promised land. I want you to have this confident knowledge or this confident hope in me. As God guides and directs in our lives, He provides. He gives us what we need to fulfill His will and to follow His guidance. Now, we're going to look through this passage. We're going to see four truths concerning God's provision. And the first truth that really stands out as we read through the passage is that grumbling is a problem. If we're going to handle things correctly and we're going to experience God and His will in our life well, then grumbling is a, is a real problem. We see that throughout Israel's history. These guys are tested time after time before God, and, and it's like they fail over and over and over. And right on the heels of, think of what they've been through. They've seen the faithfulness of God. When God's bringing the plagues on the Egyptians, God protects them. When the Egyptians' animals die, their animals don't die. When their crops are destroyed, their crops aren't destroyed. When in most of these plagues, in fact, I think it's other than the first two, that God protects them from all of them. The firstborn of all of Egypt dies. The firstborn of all of Israel through the Passover live. And so they've already seen God's hand in a miraculous way delivering them and holding them up and bringing them out of Egypt. But apparently food in the wilderness is too tall of an order or water in the desert is outside of his reach. And they start to grumble before Moses. Now, why is grumbling such a problem? Well, the primary reason that grumbling is such a problem is because grumbling ultimately is against God. Now, they don't see it that way probably at first. They're coming to Moses and they're grumbling to Moses. Well, why didn't you leave us alone? Remember when Moses first gave them the news that God was going to deliver them out of Egypt? They worshipped. As soon as the Pharaoh started to put a little pressure on them, they caved and they said, leave us alone, Moses. You're causing too much trouble for us. Now they say to Moses, why didn't you leave us alone like we asked you to? But Moses points out something. Moses says, well, who are we? We're not God. It's God. This was God's plan. God's the one that delivered you out of Egypt. God's the one that brought you across the Red Sea. God's the one that's brought you out into the wilderness. And so he points out a little something to them. Look, as you're grumbling, your grumbling is not about me. Your grumbling is about God. And the same is true for us. When we find ourselves complaining about our circumstances and our situations, well, who's ultimately in control? God. So if God is allowing us or bringing us into circumstances... It may be because He's testing us. It may be because He's building us. And we don't know what the, the reasons are. But the fact of the matter is, God is the one that's involved in our circumstances. When we complain about our circumstances and the situations that we find ourselves in in our life, God has those there for a reason. And if we can humble ourselves before God and learn the lessons that are in there and, and allow that sanctifying work of God to work in our life and in our hearts and humble us before God and endure the things that we need to endure and overcome in the things that we need to overcome, and then, then that's where the lesson is and that's where the testing helps and that's where our character is built and that's where the will of God takes place. But if we, in our circumstances complain and groan and mumble. Now, I do think that that's a little bit different than just being honest before God and saying, God, I'm having a really hard time with this. 
But when we're saying, what are you doing? Leave me alone. This is not what I wanted for my life. We're ultimately grumbling against God who sees everything so much clearer than we do. Sees even our own hearts better than we do. Sees the bigger picture that encompasses not just earth but heaven and encompasses not just now but in the future. God who sees all of it and knows all of it, when we grumble, that's what we're grumbling against. And so we need to be careful that, yes, we are honest before God and say, Lord, I'm struggling here. But that's very different than saying, look, we know what's best and you're not giving me what I should have and this is not right. And so Moses points out to them that your grumbling is ultimately against God. When we grumble about our circumstances, we fail in the same way. But then also, the secondly, grumbling is usually dishonest. Everything gets exaggerated. We exaggerate how bad our condition is or we exaggerate how good our condition is. Often we exaggerate it. There's a, there's a show, I don't know if you've seen Downton Abbey or not. I, I love the grandma in Downton Abbey. She's always got these little one-liner pithy comments and stuff like that. And there's a point in there where somebody in the family is going through a divorce and the grandma's response was, I never take sides in marriage disputes. And they said, well, why not? And she said, well, because no matter how hard everyone's trying to be honest, you find that you're never in full possession of the facts. <laughs> in other words, we just, we always favor our own side. And even if we honestly see it that way, it probably doesn't accurately describe the situation at hand. And that's what I see within the passage here also, is that Israel, in dealing with this, they're not honest. Notice how they describe their experience in Egypt. We were sitting around by the meat pots, right? It, looks, it sounds like a backyard barbecue with all of your friends. And remember what their experience really was in Egypt? Under intense slavery. Being beaten. Remember Moses rescued the guy from being beaten? They were groaning and they were crying out to God because of their misery. Now they look back at Egypt and said, man, we were, we were sitting by the Nile just picking meat at random out of the pots and eating our fill. And yeah, not even close. I have to admit that when I look at my life and how I look at sometimes at the past, I tend to glorify things. My memories aren't always super honest or reflective. Maybe it's just because I'm remembering a small part of it, but I know there's times in my life when I look back and an experience was hard and and an experience was a real trial and I can look back on that time now with favor, with kind of a nostalgia to it. Why? If If I think of honestly what it was like back at that time, then it might have been a real time of struggle, hardship. It might have been a time where I was grumbling about some of my circumstances, but now removed from it a ways looking back, oh, it didn't look so bad. That's what Israel is doing at this point. As we grumble about our circumstances, we've got to recognize that our perspective is limited. God's is overall. God's is all-knowing. And we need to humbly submit rather than grumbling before him. But then also, we also see that God's provision is sufficient. Now, God was testing them. He didn't give it to them right away, but nobody's starving to death either. And God waits, and then when God does give them what they need, it's exactly what they need. He gives them what they need for every day. In fact, He gives them what they need for every person, for every family, for every day. And He does it for 40 years. You know, sometimes we might think that we want a little bit more. Israel did that. Some of them took not just what they needed for that day, but a little bit more. 
And you know that old saying, kind of your eyes are bigger than your belly sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't just affect our belly, it affects other appetites or desires or possessions. And we want just a little bit more than we need. And so we grab a hold of those things. But when we do that and we get a little bit greedy and we want a little bit more than what we need, the same thing is what happens with Israel. In the end, it stinks. Just enough is what they needed. Just enough. But God provided what they needed every for all the times that Israel complained, I don't read in the Bible anywhere where any of them ever died of thirst or ever died of hunger. We have what we need. Our needs get met one way or another. Well, not only is it sufficient, but we also see that God's provision is experienced through faith. I think that's the reason God doesn't give us the answers up front. God wants to walk through circumstances and situations and trials with us to build our faith, to help us to learn to lean on Him, to trust in him. And that's exactly what he does with Israel. With the food, he says, go up and take just enough for today. Well, but wait a minute. As the sun gets hot, it's burning off. It's, it's going away. Yeah, it'll be there again in the morning. Are you sure it'll be there again in the morning? We don't even know what it is. In fact, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, the word manna, actually the word itself means what is it. But it's there for just a little while each morning. Go out and take all you need, but don't take more than you need. Why not take more than you need? It's not because it would rot. I think that goes the other way around. God made it rot so that they wouldn't take more than they needed. We know that it's not because it would rot, because on the sixth day they can take enough for two days and it still doesn't rot. He wants them to trust Him. Just take what you need for today because I'll provide for you tomorrow. Isn't that exactly what Jesus tells us? Even in His prayer that He taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's a foreign concept of all of us with full freezers and cabinets and stuff in the kitchen. We don't shop by the day. But he had Israel every day depending that that manna was going to be there. And you know what? That manna was there for 40 years. And so God made them respond through faith. That's how they had to experience it. There's no other way. That's the same way that we have in experiencing God's provision in our life and experiencing a relationship with God in our life is through that same faith. Also, we see finally that God's provision is Christ. All of these things that God is providing all point to Christ. And that is because God is providing for us something greater. As God was providing manna for Israel in the wilderness, if you think about it, what does it really represent? Well, if they don't have something to eat, they do die. After this, we deal with the rock. And God has Moses go and hit the rock with his staff and the water gushes out of there. If they don't have water in the desert, they die. And so that's what these things are providing. The bread from heaven is providing life in the wilderness. The water from the rock is providing life in the wilderness. This is God providing life. And all three of these things, the manna, the Sabbath, the water from the rock, they're all of them point us to Christ, to a greater life. These things are speaking not just of God keeping the nation of Israel alive for 40 years in the desert. These things are speaking to the eternal life that we get to receive because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Notice with the bread, first of all, in the Gospel of John, the leaders would say to him, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we, we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says that's what the true bread from heaven is, is he who comes down from heaven to give life. And then a couple verses later, in John 6.35, says Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then when you get to verse 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We know that God spoke to Moses. They told him that on a number of occasions. God gave them manna in the wilderness through Moses. Jesus says, really? Do you not see what that was all about? The manna in the wilderness was the bread that came down from heaven and provided life. It pointed to me. I am the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life that came down from God. And if you believe in me, you will live. It's not just about them living for 40 years in the wilderness and dying off during that time period. It's about you living forever because you have me, the source of life. But then he also goes on to the Sabbath. And the Sabbath also points to Christ. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17, It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The early church had a real struggle with this because the Jewish people had all these festivals and feasts that God had commanded them to celebrate. And then the Messiah came, which all those things pointed to. And then you had some Jewish people got saved and the church starts. And you have Gentile people that start getting saved and joining the church. And they don't have the history of all those festivals that the Jewish people have. And so then the Jewish people, for a time in the early church, they had a struggle with, well, don't they have to kind of become Jewish? Don't they have to do what we do and have our festivals and and go through circumcision and do these different things? And the clear answer was no. Those were all things that pointed to Christ. Now that Christ is here, we have the real thing. And so you don't have to do those. If you want to participate in a festival or a Sabbath because it points to Christ, you can do it. If you don't want to participate in the Sabbath, a Sabbath or a festival, then you don't have to do it because you have the reality of it, which is Christ. And that's what he's telling them in Colossians. He says, let no one pass judgment on you, whichever way you decide to do it. Don't let somebody judge you for the way that you're doing it. Why? Because in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. So he said, don't let somebody judge you. In in Israel's history, they didn't keep the Sabbath. They were exiled from Israel. It's a big deal. Now they're going, doesn't matter anymore? Really? It's not that it doesn't matter. It's that now we have the real thing. Even the Sabbath pointed to Christ. Or what is the message of the Sabbath that brings us to Christ? You know what it is? It's rest. It makes sense. That's what Sabbath was all about. Well, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews makes this statement. He says, if, if Joshua speaks of a Sabbath that is coming, because you have the creation rest of God, and then Israel is supposed to get to the promised land, which is supposed to be another Sabbath, a, a, a Sabbath rest, 
where they can rest. They're not traveling around the wilderness anymore. They can finally be at home. They can rest. They can settle in. And then also he had the Sabbaths that he instituted as, as different festivals to participate in. But Joshua also spoke of a rest that still remains. So there's still a Sabbath rest that has to be entered into. What is that rest? Well, we look at a Sabbath rest of resting in heaven when we get to heaven. But he points out that Christ is the fulfillment of it. It says in chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews, verse 8 through 10, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The point is, Christ is the Sabbath. What does that mean? It means in Christ we rest. We haven't put our faith in Jesus Christ until we stop working. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God has done for you. God tells Israel at this point, look, why did you go out to work on the Sabbath? I gave you a rest. I provided you rest in the Sabbath. That's the same thing that he says to us when we try to earn his acceptance. When we try to achieve a position before God. God says, what are you doing? I provided a rest for you in Christ. Christ is the end of works. He's the end of the law. He's the end of achieving a position before God or acceptance before God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. As we trust in him, we rest in him. We experience that salvation of God. And then finally also, the living water. They get that water from the rock. You know what the New Testament, looking back on that situation, tells us? And the rock that followed them in the wilderness, it says, and that rock was Christ. What was it? The source of that water that gave them life in the wilderness. He says that rock was Christ. He gives us the living water. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, says, On the last day of the feast, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, The great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The feast that they're at is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the, the time of year that the Jewish people for a week would remember the time that they had to wander in the wilderness. So all of Israel is going to live in tents for a week to remember that they did it for 40 years back during the day of Moses when God led them through the wilderness. During that feast, every day, a priest would take a golden pitcher and he would go to the Gihon Springs. And he'd go to the Gihon Springs and he'd dip a pitcher out of the Gihon Springs. He'd carry the water back to the temple and he would pour it out at the altar. As the priest would bring the pitcher water back to the temple, the people would sing Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. There's also a very vivid allusion to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 8. It says, on that day, it's talking about the day of the Lord, when, when, when Christ comes back and has his day, sets up his kingdom. It says, on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And so... There's this imagery that God has given the nation of Israel that's looking forward to this time when the Messiah comes back and living water flows out of Jerusalem. They're celebrating this feast where a priest takes and dips from a spring and brings it over and pours that 
water out as a symbol of that living water, pours it out at the altar, and Jesus stands up and says, If anyone believes in me, out of him will flow, flow rivers of living water. Jesus is that living water. Where God guides, He provides. We notice some practical helps. Grumbling doesn't help anything. It's a real problem because we're grumbling against God. And also, our perspective on it is, no matter how hard we might try, is not very honest. But we also see that God's provision is sufficient. He takes care of us. God's provision is experienced through faith. And then lastly, God's provision is Christ. Christ is the center of all of it. We see it illustrated in everything. You know, when Jesus met his disciples on the road to Emmaus after he rose again from the dead, and they were so confused by his death and confused by the first accounts that they'd heard that he was alive again after he was dead. The Bible says that Jesus went back into the Old Testament, back into the law, and he showed them how it all pointed to him. And everything that we keep coming across in here, we find points back to Christ. 